Well, good to see you here in week 13, the end of yet another year. Hand up if this has been your first year at university. Well done, well done. Just a few quizzes and you get to have a holiday. You'll be fine. (laughs) Hand up if this is your last year on campus. Heading out. There's a few of you. Here you go. Your final EU meeting. Really glad that you've made the effort to be here today. My question for you then as we come to the end is this. Are you a church wrecker? Are you a church wrecker? Now, my guess is that you don't deliberately set out to wreck God's church by, say, teaching heresy or false theology, but that certainly would wreck God's church. My guess is you don't set out to wreck God's church by speaking ill of other people, by slander or things like that, though that certainly would wreck God's church. My question is, are you inadvertently, without realising it, wrecking God's church by what you do, by what you approve of, by your practices? The message we get in Romans chapters 14 and 15 is that you could be a person who is destroying God's church by what you do, even though you don't realise it. What we're looking at here in the book of Romans, we've been looking at this book on and off again throughout the whole year, we're coming to the very pointy end of the Apostle Paul's letter to these Christians in Rome. Now, if you remember right back to when we started looking at the book of Romans, you'll remember I said that the book of Romans, well, you don't remember it all, but I'll tell you again. The book of Romans, Paul writes, I think, because there is a pastoral crisis going on in the church at Rome. Pastoral crisis. But the pastoral crisis was a result of a theological problem. And this theological problem and pastoral crisis was having missional consequences. So let me just remind you of those things. What was the pastoral crisis going on in the church at Rome? Well, the church at Rome was made up of people who had committed themselves in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those people came from a Jewish background. They were Jews by birth or by choice and you know, they've been followers of the old covenant law, but now they've come to believe in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. But there were others there, followers of Jesus, Christians, but who came from a non-Jewish background. They came from a Gentile background. They hadn't been following the old covenant law of the Jews. They'd been living their life as pagans, and now they had put their faith in Jesus. In this church here in Rome, you've got Christians from both backgrounds. But what was happening was there were some there in the congregation, those from the Jewish background, who said, yes, we've got faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, but we feel like we need to keep some of the old covenant laws. And there were a lot of old covenant laws about food, what foods it was right to eat and wrong to eat, uh, what sort of days you needed to keep, uh, laws about ritual purity, lots of things that sort of were a constraint on the way you lived and the way you lived with other people. And then there were Gentile Christians who didn't feel they needed to follow any of those laws. You can imagine then when those two groups come together, even though they've got a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, life together becomes very difficult. Because some are saying we need to follow the food laws 
And others are saying, no, we don't need to, so when we have a Christian church barbecue, we can throw on the pork ribs and it's no problem. But others are saying, no, no, that's a massive problem. And so there's a pastoral crisis going on here in the church in Rome, which you can see here in chapter 14 of the book of Romans. But you see that underneath that pastoral crisis is a theological problem, the theological question of what place does the old covenant law have for a follower of Jesus Christ, for a Christian? Do we need to follow that old covenant law a lot? That's a theological problem. And for Paul, this theological problem and the pastoral crisis has significant missional consequences because Paul, as God's appointed apostle to the Gentile world, is going right around the Mediterranean trying to win Gentiles to faith in Jesus Christ but he wants the support of the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. But if word gets back to them that actually there's this great problem in the Church of Rome and some of the Jewish Christians are being mistreated by the Gentile Christians, it's going to cause ructions right across all of Paul's ministry and his apostolic task of preaching the Gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul needs to fix this problem. Fix it for the sake of the Romans, answer the theological problem, in order that the mission to the Gentile world might continue well. So this is the situation. Into this context he writes this epistle, this letter that we have, the letter to the Romans. Now Paul's answer to some of those issues we've seen as we've gone through the book. What was his answer to the theological problem? What place does the old covenant law have for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus? He answered that very clearly earlier in the letter. He says, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I, you are no longer under the old covenant law. You're not, you do not need to obey all the details of that old covenant law. Instead, he says, as a follower of Jesus, you have the blessing of the Holy Spirit in your life and empowered by the Spirit, you now live a life of love to one another And in that way you fulfil the righteous requirements of the law, according to Romans 8 verse 4. So he actually says we fulfil the heart of the law when we live in a life of love, empowered by the Spirit. So you don't need to follow all those old covenant laws anymore. That's his answer to the theological problem. You have seen part of his answer to the missional problem because in chapters 9 to 11 he makes clear that God's purposes are to bring people from both the Jews and the Gentiles into one new humanity in Christ Jesus. So he's answered the theological problem, he's answered the missional problem, now he comes to the pointy end, chapter 14 and 15, and answers the pastoral problem. How are these Christians in Rome meant to get on with each other, given their difference in views over the old covenant law? All right? Now you can see here, if you've got your Bible open, it would be really helpful to open at this point. You can see here, I'm going to jump to the end of this little section and see how sort of Paul sort of summarises some of what he said in this letter. Chapter 15, verse 7. Let me read it to you, 7 and 8. He says, Welcome one another then, just as Christ welcomed you, in order to bring praise to God. And then he has this great sort of summary sentence. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In that one sentence Paul's pretty much summarised the entire message of the letter. What he's tried to be articulating right throughout the letter is how in the Gospel of God this announcement about Jesus 
God has shown his righteousness. He's fulfilled his purposes for his whole creation. How's he done that? He said, well, Christ came as a servant of the Jews in accordance with the plan of God to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, that is the Jewish ancestors, in order that the Gentiles might praise God for his mercy, in order that the Gentiles might be included into the promises made to the Jewish patriarchs. There you can see in that one sort of sense he said, here's the great plan of God for Jew and Gentile met in Jesus Christ. That's the great big plan of God he's been expanding right throughout the letter. And when he gets to the pointy end, the pointy end right here, he says, how does this affect how you live as Christians? Now, the issues we're going to explore here in chapter 14 and 15, they might not be the issues in your church. But let me suggest to you that there probably are issues in your church that need this sort of treatment. So, this is highly relevant to the way we live together. So, Paul makes four points here, I think. Four points from chapter 14.1 through to about 15.6. Four points on how we're to actually live together as Christians in the light of these wonderful truths about Jesus. The first is this. I'll write up the board. Welcome the weak. He tells us to welcome the weak. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. Let me read to you. He says, Welcome those whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to do eat everything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted that person. Notice there in verse 1 he says, Welcome those whose faith is weak. Who are these people who have weak faith? Well, I think what he says, what he means here when he talks about people who are weak in faith, he talks about those who are uncomfortable with the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. The weak in faith are those who are uncomfortable with the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. They might be uncomfortable with the freedom we have in Christ because of ignorance. Maybe they're just ignorant of the freedoms we have in Christ. Maybe they're ignorant of the fact that the fact that Paul has answered the theological problem, he's very clear, we are no longer under the details of that Old Testament law, therefore it is fine to eat bacon, to eat pork, whatever else. But maybe they're ignorant of that fact. Maybe they're a follower of Jesus, just but they just don't realise that. And so therefore they don't, they don't want to partake of those things because they're <coughs> ignorant of our freedom. But for some people it's not an ignorance problem, it's a conscience problem. See, Paul has just said right throughout the letter, he's been trying to answer the theological problem. So if you've read right through the letter, you know that you're free in Christ from the details of those old covenant laws. But for some people, they still have a conscience issue over it. I'll give you an example. Like, if, Imagine that you had been a sincere sort of Jewish follower of Yahweh for, for years, for decades, maybe your whole life. So for your whole life, part of how you defined your your commitment to the one true living God was by not eating bacon, was by not having pork, was by observing the Sabbath, was by keeping away from things that would make you ritually unclean. You you lived your whole life about this. And now you come to faith in Jesus as your Jewish Messiah. 
And you learn through the Apostle Paul that now you're free from those Old Testament laws. Now, for some of you might go, fantastic, great. But for some of you, even though you know you're free, how can I just suddenly... I just don't feel it. I don't feel comfortable. I can't do it. So they're they're weak in faith, not because they don't understand, but because for them, their conscience won't allow them to enjoy that freedom they have in Christ. These are the weak in faith. You can see it there in verse 2 when he says, Yes, some, he says, One person's faith allows them to eat everything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now the danger which was going on there in the church in Rome is when you've got some people who feel happy with the freedom they have in Christ and others who feel a bit constrained in light of even with that freedom, the danger is that instead of being gracious to each other, you start attacking each other. And that's exactly what was going on in Rome. So in verse chapter 3 you can see, he says, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not and the one who does not eat everything must not pass judgement on the one who does. You can see they were both being critical of the other. One side is despising those who feel free, they despise (laughs) those who don't feel free and those who don't feel free pass judgement. Sort of a holy haughtiness. Ah, you guys, you just eat everything. We're the real hardcore holy people. We're keeping this law. And then the the ones who are free are just despising. Oh, you guys, come on, you know, it's good. Smell the bacon, it's awesome. (laughs) And, And instead of there being unity in Christ, there's significant division. That's the problem. So his solution, Paul's solution is, welcome the weak in faith. He tells off both sides in verse 3. Don't be like this, don't be like that. But the emphasis in these chapters is towards those who feel free, those who understand their freedom of Christ. The emphasis is here, presumably because in the church at Rome, the majority were probably from a Gentile background and therefore felt under no constraint. But he says the emphasis here is welcome the weak in faith. Now, your Bible might say accept. I think that's a pretty wussy sort of word, right? Accept the weak in faith. I mean, you can accept all sorts of people but not have much to do with them, right? It's sort of almost like the way our society uses the word tolerate. No, no, the word is welcome and literally the word is what you use for when you take someone by the hand and bring them to yourself. It is take to yourself the weak in faith. Not tolerate them in your midst. Grab them by the hand and bring them alongside you. That sort of welcome. That's what we're to do for those who have scruples over, your, their, um, over their freedoms in Christ. Why are we to do that? Why are we to welcome one another like this? He gives the answer there in verse 3. Because God has welcomed, not you, though he has welcomed you if you're in Christ, God's welcomed that person. So that person over there who has some sort of scruple within their freedom in Christ... You ought to welcome that person because God's welcomed that person. What, are you going to say, well, God might welcome you, but I'm not? I mean, that's ridiculous. Because God has welcomed them, we welcome them. Now, in your church, or here in the EU, we may not have issues over food laws, old covenant food laws. That may not be an issue for us. Because, frankly, almost all of us probably come from a Gentile background. We may not have issues like them precisely, but I tell you what, there probably are issues in your church and even here in the EU. 
What do you think about alcohol? Do you think it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Now, the dominant sort of voice that I hear in the EU is, of course it's fine. Of course it's fine. Like, why would you have an issue with alcohol? That's crazy. I'm interested. Do you see how quickly we slip into the, we despise those who don't feel as free as we do? What about issues like horror movies? You feel fine to watch a horror movie? I mean, I, most people I know who watch horror movies do so either because they like being getting scared, sort of an adrenaline rush, or for some of them it's because it, it's, it's humorous. You see the head spin around and go, woohoo, look at that, that's wacky. <laughs> like they actually watch it out of humour. But for some, some people who have faith in Jesus Christ, for them it's actually an issue. They're not comfortable watching horror movies, not because it gives them nightmares, but because they go, no, it feels like it's actually trivialising evil, which I think is as a Christian, serious and it makes light of it. But can you imagine what happens then at church? You've sort of had a great time worshipping God together at church and then someone says, hey, let's go back to my place, watch the DVD. Great, turn up. What are they watching? Some horror flick. And you, oh, this is fine. Everyone's cool with this, aren't they? You know how we someone's asked questions like that? Everyone's cool with this, aren't they? You're expecting those who have a scruple over it to go, yeah, I have, a, I have a problem with that. Fully expecting probably they would just get torn, right? At that point. What about, what about the Sabbath? You know, I think, oh, well, we don't need to keep Sabbath anymore. In fact, Paul will say that in this chapter. We don't need to keep Sabbath anymore. Some people, one day is special. Some people say all days the same. He actually says, let everyone be fully convinced in their own mind. He's completely happy for you to have your own view. He's completely clear that actually we're not under the detail of the Old Testament law. So, when, are there people in your Christian community who actually, you know what, I don't do any work on a Sunday, I don't do any uh, uni work on a Sunday, I just feel like I, I shouldn't. And I feel like I shouldn't go out to the movies on a Sunday. And I feel like it's meant to be the Lord's Day. And we sort of go, what are you doing? Like it's like, and again, we sort of despise I just wonder whether this is actually happening a lot in our churches over all sorts of issues. What about the issue of music? What sort of music should we have in corporate worship? What sort of tensions do we have? We say, oh yeah, we know who objects to that. It's all the old people. All the old people who don't like modern sort of music. I mean, it's so ridiculous. And we catch ourselves again. Or we say, what about what sort of liturgy should we have when we meet together to worship God? I mean, those set prayers. I mean, ridiculous. Standing up to say the Like, what are you doing there? <laughs> but do you, we're so quick, we don't show grace in these things, we're so quick to despise one another in these things. So, the first thing Paul says is, welcome the weak in faith. Why? Because God has welcomed that person. Okay, so we welcome the weak. Weak. Let's move on fast. Second thing he says is, live to the Lord. Welcome the weak, but live your life to the Lord. This is fascinating. Paul always keeps surprising me. He doesn't say the thing that I expect. Okay, so if you 
if you didn't catch that because you're listening on MP3, wow, you should come to public meetings because it's funnier in real life. Okay. <laughs> the second fascinating thing he says is that we actually are to live to the Lord. What he means by this is, it's not that suddenly we all have to agree on these, what he calls, disputable matters in verse 1. We're actually allowed to have freedom in what you think. Now, Paul's been crystal clear about what the truth is, but he lays another level on top of what is God's truth, that is the level of conscience. He says, this is what God says, you're free from the detail of the Old Covenant law, but we have to take account of conscience. And he says, what you should do is you live your life to the Lord, being fully convinced in your own mind. This is the section going from verse 4 all the way through to verse 9. I'm just going to read it out. I want you to keep a mental tally of how time he uses the word Lord or a word like it. Right? You just see what the emphasis here is in these verses. Verse 4, he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master they stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some consider one day more sacred than another. Others consider every day alike. Everyone should be fully convinced in their own mind. Those who regard one day as special, do so to the Lord. Those who eat meat, do so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And those who abstain, do so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For we do not live to ourselves alone and we do not die to ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. So he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Now, I don't know how many times he mentioned the word Lord, but it's a lot. Clearly, the emphasis in that section is the Lordship of Jesus. It's universal. It encompasses everything we do. It encompasses every person, living or dead, which means he's Lord of you. And what he says here is that you are, if you're in Christ, a servant of the Lord, verse 4. You belong to the Lord, verse 8. He's Lord of all, there in verse 9. So whatever you do, whatever you do in your life, you do it to the Lord. That's what he says there in verse 6. So what there is here is there is this wonderful freedom to hold your own view on these disputable matters. Yes, God's truth is clear, but, but what you think is right in light of God's truth, whether you feel free to take that freedom you have in Christ or not, that's up to you. And you live to the Lord, so be fully convinced in your own mind. Why, Why do we have this, this freedom to live to the Lord? Because he is Lord and we are his. That's the reason why. Jesus is Lord and we are his, so I live to him. I live before him, before I live before you, even as we live together. Now, you might start thinking, okay, I'm getting this. We welcome the weak, but I'm free to live to the Lord myself. But how are you actually going to pull that off? I mean, if I'm convinced of one thing and you're convinced of another thing, fully convinced in our own minds, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Not unity. So that's where we come to the third thing. The third thing he says here is, but we are determined to not destroy one another. Even as we are free to live to the Lord, we are determined to not destroy one another. 
Chapter 14, verse 10 through to 23. 14, 10 through to 23. Let me just read the beginning of that for you. 14, 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister or why do you treat your brother or sister with contempt? Now, he's addressing both groups there, right? One, same words are used in verse 3. One side is condemning or despising the other. The other side is passing judgment on the other. He addresses both groups. Why do you do this, he says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will confess to God. So then we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. What he's saying is we have to be determined. He says there, verse 10, or sorry, down in verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 13, make up your mind, be determined, be resolved to not put a stumbling block in front of your brothers and sisters. I started today by saying, are you a church wrecker? You wreck God's church, you destroy your Christian brothers and sisters when you put a stumbling block in their way. What's a stumbling block? I mean, literally something that makes you fall, right? What he's talking about here is when you do something that encourages your brother or sister to sin against their conscience. Because what he says in that bit that I read out is when someone sins against their conscience, even though, yes, objectively it is part of your freedom in Christ, but if they think that it's not right and they do it, then he says it's not coming from faith, is it? And he said, then it is a sin. Even if somehow objectively it's within the freedom we have in Christ. So he says, when you, by your action, somehow encourage a brother or sister to sin against their conscience, you're causing them to stumble, you're leading to their destruction. Now, that, how, what does that mean to sin against your conscience and how might my actions encourage that? That needs some careful thought and maybe we need to talk more about it afterwards today. But it's not saying, it's not saying this. I see what you're doing and I don't, like, I don't like it. I think that's wrong. I know you think it's right according to God's word but I think it's wrong. You're causing me to sin by doing it. Well, no, not necessarily actually. That's just the fact that you're doing something I don't agree with isn't causing me to sin, is it? What causes me to sin is when I have to play off having fellowship with you or acting in accordance with my own conscience. It's when I have to play up, oh, I really, I, 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 know, I know alcohol's fine under God and in Christ Jesus, but I just, I can't, I don't think it's right. I, I have a conscience issue over it. But if I want to hang out with you as my Christian brother or sister, I have to come to the pub with you and I sort of need to... I feel like if I really want to have fellowship with you, I have to, be, I have to drink. And so, well, I want to have fellowship with you. And so, I'm, you see how I suddenly sin against my conscience. That's what he's talking about. Not the fact that maybe I have a difference of opinion with you. 
He says, let everyone be fully convinced in their own mind. The way we work it out though is, I resolve not to put any stumbling block in your way. To not put you in that terrible situation where you've got to play off having fellowship with being holy according to your conscience in Christ Jesus. That's the thing we're seeking to avoid. So we're determined to not destroy each other. Why? Because, says there, God will hold us accountable. The reason we're going to not destroy one another is actually because each of us belong to the Lord. And you don't want to destroy what belongs to the Lord. We're all going to be held accountable by him. He says it twice there in that passage. So, let's um, move to the final thing that he says then. The final thing he says, he flips it around and expresses it positively. We're determined to not destroy. Instead, we please with a purpose. We please with a purpose. So instead of me putting a stumbling block in your way, this is chapter 15, 1 to 7, instead of putting a stumbling block in your way, what I'm going to do is I'm going to seek to please you. I'm going to seek to please you because I have a purpose and my purpose is to work for your upbuilding. That's going to be my purpose. You see here, what you get here is this, this radical self-limiting of the liberty, the genuine liberty that I have in Christ Jesus. Why am I going to limit this liberty I have in Christ Jesus? Because I want to see you built up. It's because of love. So I therefore I will not please myself. I will not use the genuine liberties I have in Christ. I will sacrifice those happily in order that I might please you and work for your upbuilding. Even as I'm fully convinced in my own mind of what is actually right and what my freedoms are. But I'll leave them at the door in order to love and build you up. That's the picture here of pleasing with a purpose. Why do we do that? Why do we please with a purpose? He's very clear. Chapter 15 says it there in verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. The reason we seek to please the others is because that's what Jesus did. He didn't please himself but sought to serve us in love. Do you see here out of these four things he's told, welcome the weak, live the Lord, determine to not destroy, please with a purpose. Did you notice what the reasons were each time? We welcome the weak because God has welcomed that person. We live to the Lord because Jesus is Lord of all and we belong to him. We are determined to not destroy because God will hold us all accountable. And we please with a purpose because Christ did not please himself. Do you see the reason every time? It's all about Jesus Christ and his heavenly Father. Every single time. What you see here at the end of this book of Romans, and this is where we're finishing, what you see at the end of this book of Romans is that God has not just formed a new community around his son Jesus, but he now empowers this community through his spirit to live like him, to show forth his character, to treat one another the way God has treated them, to live in the light of the reality of God and that Jesus is Lord. This is what the new community is doing. This is how God is displaying his righteousness, his faithfulness to all of creation through this gospel about Jesus by forming this community that they might live for him. This is your task, friends. This is who you are to be to be this community. This is who we are to be, the EU on campus, to be this community gathered around and formed in Jesus Christ to live this way, showing forth God's own love and character in our dealings with one another. That's how we be lights in the world.
So let me lead us in a very quick thank you to God for that thing and then we're going to be led in some other prayers as we try to wrap up the year together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for these truths and we pray that empowered by your spirit we might live to your praise and glory. Amen.